0: listeners it's sam here again and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show paces ahead have courses for the start of 2024 and listeners here's a possible sweetener for you i will be there at their first course of 2024 that's the 16th to the 19th of january please do come along and say hi if you catch me it would be great to meet some of you if you're there but there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well, the 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market leading online revision PACES resource. I think most PACES sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labeled Pass Test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome to the Pre-PACES Podcast with me, Sam Williams, and this episode we covered renal transplants, one of the most common PACES stations. This is one that you absolutely have to cover in your revision, and we had not one, but two expert guests to help us navigate this topic. This is one of the biggest, and even if I say so myself, one of the best episodes we've recorded so far. In fact, after the record was over, the finished product was so long and bursting at the seams, with the best tips to help you with this station but I actually thought it would be best to split it into two separate episodes so this first part will cover the examination and the case presentation of a patient with a renal transplant and in the next episode we'll cover the investigations, management and a huge number of additional questions which could come up in your exam so look out for that in our next release but for now let's get into the show Welcome back, Pacesitters. I am your host, Sam Williams, and welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast. And this episode, we have our very first double header. Yes, that's right. For the first time, we have two expert guests joining me on the show. My feeling was that renal transplant was such a mammoth pace station, it needed twice the firepower to tackle it. Our first guest is a consultant nephrologist, at Gloucester Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust, someone who, when I saw his Twitter handle for the first time, made me howl out loud with laughter. He goes by the handle of @hotkidneyaction Kidney Action on Twitter and freely admitted that he celebrated his 10-year anniversary. yep, that's a tongue twister – by getting his favourite parking space and rewriting a drug chart if ever there was something to give hope to the ward cover SHOs that the fun really doesn't ever stop. We warmly welcome to the show, Dr. Jim Moriarty. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Sam, thanks for having us on. And joining him is Dr. Ravati Jane, affectionately known to her friends and colleagues as RJ. She has just completed her training in real medicine and has now confined herself to only being able to do lines from the comfort of her own home. So RJ, thank you very much for joining us as well.
1: Uh, thank you for having me.
0: And for the first time ever, we have a head-to-head quiz the consultant at the end of the show. This is the quiz where our consultants answer 10 questions on their very own specialist subject with the caveat that it can't be related to medicine. So, RJ, if we start with you, what have you named as your
1: specialist subjects? So, my specialist subject is going to be on uh, Oroctolagus caniculus domesticus, in layman terms, domestic rabbit, and associations.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And is was there a particular reason why you chose this subject in particular?
1: Well, um, for some unknown reason, my husband and I decided to acquire two mini locks recently, having never had any pets before or any real reason to do it. So would have been good to know something about the animals before getting them, but yes, that's why I've chosen my special subject.
0: (laughs) Perfect. And of course, RJ will be facing off against Jim. So Jim, what have you chosen as your specialist subject? Uh, Sam, I'd be happy to take on the Marvel Cinematic
2: Universe uh, 2008 through to 2021, Uh, ideally including Disney Plus shows, but not Shang-Chi because I haven't seen it yet.
0: Can I say, as someone who is not a particular fan of the MCU, this was a real treat to research for, but also I think really just epitomizes what. Quiz the Consultant is all about, which is showing the interests of consultants who come on the show and that they are not just obsessed with their individual specialties. So I can't wait to get started on that for our first ever head-to-head Quiz the Consultant. But for now, let's get cracking on this absolutely essential station of renal transplants. So this station is absolutely critical in PACEs. It's one of the most common stations that comes up in PACEs all over the UK and all over the world. So, Jim, if we start with you, why do you think patients with end-stage renal disease or renal transplants come up so frequently in PACEs?
2: Well, I think the first reason really, Sam, is that there are a hell of a lot of patients with uh, kidney transplants around. Um, You might not think that on the surface of things, but it's the most common form of Kidney replacement treatment that we offer. Uh, last time I had a look, there are about 38,000 uh, patients with kidney transplants still working in the UK. So uh, the likelihood is there'll be one living pretty close to wherever it is you're sitting. Paces. Uh, it's patients who've got stable signs uh, for the most part. So uh, we know that they can be fitted into the local Paces database to come back time and time again. Um, and uh, usually they're patients who've got pretty good relationships with their treating teams and are. Uh, willing to come in and, and do a favour and, uh, and, and sit down, sometimes at quite short notice. So, you know, when the uh, exciting liver case has uh, decided they're, they're not going to come in on that day, uh, kidney transplant would be a pretty good one to, to sub in at the last moment. So um, I think you're quite right. It's something you're likely to see um, for your abdominal station.
0: And RJ, one of the things we discussed before recording this podcast was just the pure volume of clinical signs which are possible to detect in these sorts of patients.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Sam. So... You know, you you may have clinical signs or features suggested of the underlying primary disease that has resulted in renal transplantation. You know, in terms of thinking about the structure of the exam, your marks aren't going to be all for just identifying that in that abdominal patient, uh, abdominal station, the patient has a renal transplant, but trying to look at the signs around um, and trying to work out what the primary diagnosis is. Also, there may be signs um complications of uh, immunosuppression, which we'll go into later on in the podcast.
0: Perfect. So if we start right at the beginning, this is usually a station one station. So in other words, it's the part of the abdominal station, which is most likely where you'll find these types of patients. And the setup will be you'll have six minutes to examine the patient with no history included, and then four minutes of presentation and questions to your examiners. As per our previous episodes on these purely examination stations, we are going to proceed through the examination chronologically as the candidates would proceed through. Before we even start or lay a hand on the patient, obviously we see the patient from the end of the bed. So Jim, what is it possible to take on board from the end of the bed, which might give an indication that this patient has a renal pathology? I'm I'm sure that
2: people will say the same thing every time. You just want to stand there, don't you, and spend a few seconds having a good look around, see what the clues are. Uh, If it's something like uh, blood uh, glucose monitoring equipment sat next to the patient or finger prick marks or something like that that you can just pick up immediately, they might have something very obvious that will point to a renal diagnosis, such as a fistula or a dialysis line, and I will get into a bit more detail on what to look out for. Uh, a little bit later on. I think it's also fair to say that many of many patients with a good functioning kidney transplant won't have very much to see. Um, so there may not be a huge amount from the end of the bed. And in which case, I guess, don't waste um, you know, three or four minutes sort of staring around looking for something that might not be there and, uh, and get to where, where the answers are likely to be.
0: One thing I would say is that for example, in some stations, you may expect to find older patients. It's not necessarily the case with something like a renal transplant, as this can obviously occur at a range of ages. So it's not something that can be easily ruled out just by observing that there's a particularly young or particularly old patient in these stations. So, RJ, the next part of the examination is largely going to be looking at the hands. That's usually where we start with the next part of the examination. So, what in the hands can give signs which might help us towards a diagnosis?
1: So, I think the first thing to say about Um, examining hands in any patient's station really is not to spend too much time there. The first thing I would say is uh, ask the patient to put their hands um, up in front as you would do for say a short station for thyroid examination to look for a tremor which um, can be a sign of uh, CNI use particularly tacrolimus. Um, Now there may not be any tremor at all and if you look at the literature, some patients can have a tremor despite normal dose of tacrolimus. And that often happens at peak concentration, usually two hours post-dose. But it's most commonly seen when tac levels are too high. Then I would just look at the back of the hands, looking for skin cancers, warts, which are all more common with um, significant immunosuppression, particularly in older transplant patients. Um, and have a quick look at the nails, looking for things like knees lines, which um, frankly isn't very common. I've only ever seen it once and this is um, a sign of stress that so can be seen in any advanced organ failure. So the times I've seen it is actually um, in patients who have you know n- never seen a doctor and presented quite late. So I think you're unlikely to see that. The uh, lines are a sign of nephrotic syndrome. Again, you might see that in a renal patient who, for example, may have had a failed transplant with nephrotic syndrome, which are white bands, transverse lines across the nails. But otherwise, again, I wouldn't spend too much time on the hands.
0: Yeah, fully agree with that. And as Jim mentioned at the start, one of the things just to look for very quickly would just be blood sugar testing on the sides or the uh, pulp of the fingers just to see if there's any evidence which may indicate diabetes as an underlying cause. So then proceeding through the hands, you've gone through that nice and quickly, you're then moving up to the arms. And here is where we may find some significant findings suggestive of renal pathology, Jim. One of the things which is most significant might be an arteriovenous fistula. So firstly, for the audience, what is an arteriovenous fistula and what are the critical things for listeners to do, should they find one during the examination?
2: Okay, well, uh, an AV fistula for dialysis access is the most commonly used form of dialysis access. So I think you're right. If you're going to see something, that's likely to be what you see in the exam. Um in essence, uh, it's a vein that is endonastomosed onto an artery, usually uh, in the arm. So down towards the bottom, it might be a radiocephalic or higher up in the arm, a brachiocephalic fistula. Um, and what that does is give a big vein with high blood flow through it, somewhere between 300 mils a minute and maybe up to a couple of litres, which is where you get into sort of complications of fistulas, really. Uh, the vein is is tough. It's arterialized, so it can have needles put in it regularly three times a week so to support the dialysis treatment. Uh, without leading to loss of vascular access um, so I think that's the, uh, the very short and non-surgical guide to what a fistula is you'll, so you'll see this big lumpy blood vessel usually heading up the arm especially if it's a, a patient of, uh, uh, of, a, of a certain vintage who's had renal replacement treatment for some years when you get to having a look and a feel of what's going on say you may notice it looks a bit lumpy and bumpy certainly looks much bigger than uh, a typical blood vessel would and if it's working you'll be able to feel a thrill and if you listen you'll be able to to hear a brewery if you can't do either of those things it probably means that fistula isn't still working. Uh, Sometimes, especially with a a form of uh, of access called an an AV graft, you can't feel or hear very much. Uh, So it doesn't completely rule out something that's still working. But from an exam point of view, I think if you say you can't hear or feel anything, you're on pretty safe ground, I think, saying it might not be working. And then if you want to see if if there are any potential complications related to the fistula, have a look at it and and move their arm around as long as the patient's comfortable to let you do so. So if you've got a fistula that collapses very easily as you raise it up above the heart, that might suggest uh, that the flow is not so good. There might be an inflow problem or an anastomotic stenosis that uh, you could possibly feel a very prominent thrill or hear a a very loud brewy around the anastomosis to suggest that and equally if you've got a fistula that doesn't collapse down at all when you move it uh, well above heart height that's an indication of an outflow stenosis uh, possibly in the distal fistula possibly further along uh, maybe in the subclavian or possibly even svc which may have other signs of course to go along with it.
0: Perfect. So, yeah, absolutely. So, an AV fistula is definitely one of the key signs which you would be expected to pick up by an examiner in that station. So, and then RJ, moving up from the arm to the face, neck, and chest, there's a number of different signs here. And, like we've spoken about already, it's a very time pressured station so you really do have to have a great degree of confidence in looking for the number of signs that can appear in this specific area so there are quite a few so do you just want to run through the types of things we might find in the face neck and chest of these patients
1: yeah absolutely so the first thing to say is if you pick up a fish and i'm just going to go back at one stage the important thing is to look in both arms because often in a cardiovascular examination you may go to the patient's right hand side. So it's important to expose both arms because you may miss it on the other arm. If you pick up a fistula, then that's, you know that's a sign in your abdominal station that you're gonna be, you know maybe looking for a transplant and then you can focus a bit more you're thinking about where you're going to look. So I would go up to the neck and at that point it might be a good time to look at their fluid status. If you're already thinking this is a patient who's got end stage renal failure, may have a transplant then that would be a good time there to do a quick assessment of where their JVP is, I think. And at that point, you should look very closely for scars. So looking at the ante- anterior triangle of the neck, usually at the base of the neck for a small scar, it might be subtle. Um, and, you know, to if you're not sure, I think it's also worth looking lower down because tunneled um, central venous catheters, you know, are tunneled under the skin um, over the pectoralis. So there will be a scar lower down for that area. So not just looking at the base of the neck. I would probably move on to the eyes next, you know, again, not much to look for, but, you know, just noting things like corneal arcus. We know that patients with chronic kidney disease, patients on CNIs, i.e. Cytosporin tacrolimus, have um, greater risk of hyperlipidemia. So it's a good thing to mention, particularly when later on you might be talking about the complications of immunosuppression or CKD. Going further onto the anterior part of the neck, you may see a scar from a parathyroidectomy. Um, Often patients prior to transplantation may have been on um, dialysis or have had CKD for a long time and may have developed tertiary hyperparathyroidism, again, a complication. And while you're there, just looking at their face closely for any evidence of excisions of skin cancers. I'd also look in the mouth. The main thing you're looking for here is gingival hypertrophy from cyclosporin. Uh, you may also notice uh, hair loss, which can also be a sign from, of tacrolimus use, but that's less common. I think at this point, if you've clearly identified this as a renal station, I would probably ask the patient to sit forward and just have a look for any scars um, posteriorly. If somebody's had a a lateral to an anterior incision for an nephrectomy and we'll come back to the indications for that what that might tell you about this patient and it's a good it's a good opportunity to look then.
0: Yeah perfect so like I mentioned at, at the start of that sort of little section there's a multitude of different signs you can see there and it really just emphasizes how quickly you do have to take in a very large amount of information from a very small period of examination of the patient and rj went on to it there a little bit jim we're talking about possible nephrectomies and why a patient might have that and and it made sense to attempt to sit the patient forward before you then lie them flat to, to formally examine the abdomen so if say they do the candidate sit the patient forward and they and they see a scar around the flank suggestive of a nephrectomy why might a patient with signs of end-stage renal disease have had a nephrectomy
2: I think there are a number of uh, things to be thinking of. And if you're coming to the conclusion that this is, in fact, a kidney transplant case, as you as you work your way through, you might have already sort of inspected and seen there's something going on in the abdomen, uh, then to make room for a kidney transplant would, uh, would be quite high on the list of reasons to have either unilateral or bilateral polycystic nephrectomy. Um, from a clinical point of view, there are lots of other potential indications as well. Uh, some patients uh, will just have an abdomen so full that it starts to impact Impact on nutritional status. Some patients will have recurrent infections related to polycystic uh, kidneys, recurrent cyst infections, which aren't necessarily uh, amenable to either drainage or uh, long-term antibiotic treatment. And again, that's something that's a, a, a good idea to solve definitively before embarking on kidney transplantation and a lifetime of immunosuppression. So I think they're probably the main, the main indications for it there um i think we've we've mentioned that around the back uh it's the classic trick isn't it in paces that there's a nephrectomy scar around the back that you don't see from the from the front but you can really see scars um pretty much anywhere so i'd be suspicious if you've got a, a patient with a large abdominal scar uh who maybe might wouldn't have anything around the back that that could well be from a from a nephrectomy
0: So yeah, definitely always have to be conscious of things which the examiners or indeed the patients may be hiding from you, particularly with respect to nephrectomy scars. So then... You've done these sort of peripheral parts of the examination you're now coming to the real meat of the sandwich the abdominal examination the formal part of the examination where you're going to find the vast majority of the most significant clinical signs in this station first of all inspection the first part of examining the abdomen there's going to be so much you're able to see before you even lay a hand on the patient and you need to be careful to look for other things first and not focus solely on looking for a transplant even if you've clocked that there may be signs suggestive of that earlier in the station. So the first thing to inspect would be for scars. So RJ if you could just describe where would you be most likely to see the scar of an existing transplant and we've already mentioned nephrectomy but what other scars in the abdomen would be important to look for when you're inspecting
1: Typically, um, in terms of having to plumb a renal transplant in, they're put in uh, either iliac fossa. And, you know, that really just depends on if you try and look at the most common site for transplantation, it actually really depends on the kidney that's retrieved at the time of transplantation and uh, also the vasculature supply of the leg of the recipient. So um, I I would be looking at both sides for a scar in the uh, iliac fossa. if you see two scars, the first thing to say is that could be because the patient has had two transplants. Um, and often if a transplant has failed and the patient has had a second transplant, the uh, older transplant may not be palpable when you come to the abdominal examination. And um, of course it could be something else. It could be that the patient has had an appendectomy and has a transplant on the other side. So I think you just have to be aware that you may have a renal patient who may have a renal transplant, but they may have scars for other reasons. One of the things that you have to consider, particularly if you've picked up other signs that the patient is a diabetic, whether that be from uh, finger prick tests, although I do have to say that if that's the only sign, you have to consider in your differential diagnosis whether this patient's developed post-transplant diabetes mellitus rather than diabetes mellitus being the cause of their renal failure. But a patient with diabetes may have had a pancreas transplant as well. And in that case, it's more common to have a, a midline scar as a part of a, either a pancreas followed by a kidney transplant so or a simultaneous um, pancreas kidney transplant, an SPK. Jim, would you agree that a midline scar is probably the most common for a, a SPK in, in this situation?
2: I, th- I think that's right, RJ, and uh, that's certainly something to think of um, in uh, patients, especially if they're a little bit younger. Uh, so the age cutoff for simultaneous kidney-pancreas transplant uh, tends to be a little bit more, um, a little bit more aggressive than it is for patients having a kidney transplant alone. Um, and it, again, if there are other um, features. That you might have already clocked to suggest complications of, of diabetes even if they're not now having insulin uh, so anything to suggest a bit of neuropathy say then that's going to be quite high up on your list.
1: And so then looking at these so we've talked about scars for transplantation a potential in a midline scar may point to the patient having a simultaneous pancreas kidney transplant um, but then you may see laparoscopic scars as well so say we have a patient you've identified a a transplant or a potential area for transplant and you can see some laparoscopic scars, that can be um, a sign of having had a nephrectomy laparoscopically or, you know, there may be, if there are less than four um, scars, may be a sign that they've had a surgical PD catheter inserted. So um, those are all things to think about when you're inspecting the abdomen. and It may not be easy for you to explain all the scars, but I think it's just remembering that that patient may have had other surgical procedures
0: Yeah, certainly, certainly true that especially if you just see what appear to be port sites or, you know, very small circular scars. These can be from a number of different laparoscopic procedures, but also um, notable uh, or important to mention about the possibility of, um, of PD scars, peritoneal dialysis scars as well. So, yeah, extremely important to just keep your options open and always think of that as a potential cause for those scars. And then after inspection, we come to palpation of the abdomen, which obviously covers the conventional examination where you're palpating lightly for tenderness and, and then palpating for masses. And the most important thing in a patient, if you have found a scar suggestive in an iliac fossa, suggestive of a renal transplant would be the way that you examine that particularly will confirm or refute your suspected diagnosis and and following on will determine how well you're able to present to the examiner the, the exactly correct state of this patient. So, Jim, in terms of palpating the transplant itself within a broader palpation of the abdomen, how would you suggest the candidates proceed with confirming that this is most likely to be the kidney transplant?
2: I think if you've had a good look around um, and you've seen the scar, and I don't know if we really talked about what the scar looks like, um, but it's quite difficult, I think, to um, to mistake it for anything else once you've seen a few. So, uh, be well worth when uh, when you finish listening to this excellent uh, broadcast. Doing a quick Google image search on kidney transplant scars because I think you'll you'll see quite quite a few, and get a real feel for what they look like if you're not doing a renal job at the moment. So you've got this kind of curvy linear incision. It looks a bit like the Nike swoosh, doesn't it? I think in in either iliac fossa, um, and if you can only see it on one side, I would just go straight for where the money is and and start palpating there. Uh, so long as everybody's happy that you proceed and you will feel a, uh, a an organ roughly kidney sized and shaped uh, in, in that space. I don't think there's any other particular sort of magic to it, really. Um, depending on the body shape, it might not be exactly underneath the scar. So there will be a little bit of uh, mobility, hopefully too much not too much uh, you don't want to be um, having problems with the vascular and ureteric uh, supply um, but it might not be bang under the scar so if, if you go for where you think the transplant is likely to be and you can't feel something have a bit of a feel around um, it can be quite difficult if somebody is very overweight with a lot of central obesity uh, but persist and if you really can't feel anything they may have had a transplant nephrectomy so then perhaps you're going back and and thinking about having a closer look at the other side uh, or thinking about whether this might be a a, a kidney that's not not working anymore and as we said earlier are, are there any signs such as a working fistula that's been used recently to suggest that so feeling i think that's probably uh, where you can uh, sort of call it a day at that point if you've had a, a field you feel a kidney shaped uh, uh organ uh where it shouldn't be then uh, that's your diagnosis um in terms of other things you might want to do uh, it's probably worth having a listen uh, maybe think about how you're doing for time um if you've uh, spent uh, a big chunk of your six minutes already. Then you might want to skip over that. Uh, you can sometimes hear an arterial bruit related to the renal blood supply, um, and very occasionally you might hear something like an AVM um, in the kidney from a, uh, for example, a, a transplant biopsy. Uh, but I think you're, you're probably heading for full marks if you if you get into that
0: stage in the examination. So you've inspected palpated you've maybe had a brief listen over the transplant and I think part of the difficulty as well is whilst you want to perform a focused examination directed towards that pathology towards end-stage renal failure or towards a renal transplant you also need to um, carry out the rest of the examination as well so obviously you're going to be palpating for the liver and spleen even though that's not going to be pertinent in this particular station but as RJ mentioned at the start with things such as the hands, face, neck, et cetera, is you really want to rattle through those quite quickly. If for example, you find an AV fistula at the start, you, you may think, okay, well palpating for a spleen or percussing for a spleen probably isn't going to be at the most high yield, but I still need to include it in my examination just as a matter of uh, convention. And one of the key differential diagnoses, which, um, may be the etiology of end-stage renal failure is polycystic kidney disease. And during your palpation, it would be critically important to either try and detect polycystic kidneys or try and rule them out, at least by um, blotting for them, RJ.
1: Absolutely. So um, Sam, you've already mentioned that it's really important. You may have found a renal transplant in your examination, but you shouldn't neglect the Um, the rest of the abdominal examination, so um, palpating the liver and the spleen, and that would include um, examination of the native kidneys, which at that point you may pick up uh, polycystic kidneys. Now, if you've seen a nephrectomy scar on one side and you clearly feel kidneys that are blottable on the other side, that that will give you a lot of things to talk about um, during your presentation and will certainly bring up some questions from the examiners if you present it in that fashion.
0: And then lastly that we usually come to at the end of any examination is looking at the legs um, and so RJ what's what's pertinent to find in uh, in the legs of uh, patients with a renal transplant
1: so there's a, a few things it's quite useful for you to do um, during the exam when you're looking at the legs so there are the stuff that you really do need to look for like edema we've talked about whether you know if you've palpated and there isn't a transplant and there's a fish that looks like it's been used whether there's any signs of fluid overload or a transplant that's not working you know but there are other reasons to have edema in your legs other than your transplant not working if there is one there Um, and also looking again for features of uh, diabetes but the other thing I think is really important when you're at the legs it, it gives you just a you know a few seconds to just quickly take stock of everything that you've Find during your examination, so I I can't understate that when I did the exam, I, l- I felt like a long time ago was to use that those few seconds you've palpated for edema and just have a quick look around, um, and that's really useful, if, particularly if you're thinking oh, I really can't remember what I find there. What was it that I want wanted to mention?
0: Yeah, and one other thing which I would just add in at the end there is that because this is such a common station and examiners who are examining on this station, I would expect. Would expect the standard of the candidates to be high because it is such a common examination and one thing which i have heard stories of although not experienced myself is that in these stations which are relatively in inverted commas straightforward if you finish with time to spare they will jump straight into the presentation and examine the questions and essentially you you might finish with five minutes 30 with 30 seconds left If you have any doubt in your mind about any other signs you may have seen or anything you weren't 100% sure of, just make sure to take those 30 seconds to to really confirm the signs that you're going to report. Because I have heard tales of some examiners just skipping straight through because it is such an inverted commas straightforward station skipping straight forward and, and continuing with the examination. So just, just make sure that you are using the maximum of your six minutes to look for signs to ensure that you can present to the examiner with a good degree of confidence. And then part of the things that we you know learned as we went through medical school that when you complete an examination, you should always turn to the examiner and say, you know, put your arms behind your back and say, to complete my examination, I would like to. We still think this is particularly important. So particularly in these patients with renal transplants, always important to mention you would check the blood pressure Get a urine dip and then a full fluid assessment, which would also include auscultating the lungs, which you may not have time to do during this focused abdominal examination. So we've come to the end of our examination and we have a good degree of confidence that we think this patient has either end stage renal disease or. renal transplant so we're going to take a very quick break and after that we're going to be talking about the system that you should use to present back to your examiner as well as covering some of the most common examiner questions so we'll be back after this short message just a quick plug for our sponsors and we'll get right back to the show pastest.com kindly sponsored this episode of the pre-paces podcast over at pastest.com they have no fewer than three different abdominal examination videos of patients with end-stage renal disease, renal transplant, and patients requiring dialysis. Not just the examinations, but they also have exemplar candidate presentations of these patients, giving you the chance to make sure you absolutely smash a renal transplant station if it comes up in your exam. So to get access, head over to pasttest.com paces. That's pasttest.com paces. Welcome back to the Pre-PACES podcast. And we are discussing a patient who you've examined in an abdominal examination who you suspect has a renal transplant. And we've examined the patient and now we're moving into the second part of the station, which is the presentation and questions from the examiner. So there is quite a well-defined system how you should present these patients back to the examiner, And this is a system that worked for me it's important to find something that works for you as well. And I think as long as you present it in a logical fashion, which makes sense to the examiners and includes all of the pertinent details, you won't go far wrong, but we're going to give you a system which we hope will be helpful in framing your presentation of these patients. So RJ, if we start, what should be the first thing which you start with your presentation back to the examiners?
1: Again, I think this is, should be pitched with uh, how confident you are about the station. So if you've not already been told in your preparation phases, if you're happy, you know what's going on, then you should go for where the money is. And, and in this case, hopefully you would have picked up the transplant. Um, and so in that case, I would state that you believe this patient has had or has end-stage renal failure, um, uh, with currently with a renal transplant. You may, at this point, if you think you've uh, identified a cause for their renal failure, discuss those at this point but in reality that may not be the case and so that can always come to the end of your presentation in terms of mentioning a differential diagnosis. So yes, I think the first thing to say is that you believe the patient has end-stage renal failure, that they currently have a renal transplant and uh, describe your findings to support that as well as other findings if you have identified a potential cause and reasoning why that may be, whether that's finger prick marks or lipoatrophy or peripheral neuropathy, whatever that may be for diabetes, or if on the abdominal examination you find a nephrectomy scar and a belottable kidney suggesting a PKD, well, they should go at the, the start of your presentation.
0: Yeah, perfect. And one thing which I would just pass on is to say that if you really can't find anything to suggest a specific etiology, It is fine to say there were no specific signs related to a distinct etiology. But then the really important thing from our perspective is to then list the possible differential diagnoses which could be culpable for the patient having a renal transplant. So, um, Jim, what would be the most common differential diagnoses for a patient who has had a renal transplant? Um,
2: I think they've uh, mostly cropped up during the course of the uh, the podcast, haven't they? But, uh,
0: yeah. you know, diabetes
2: is up there. So of, of patients requiring uh, treatment for end-stage kidney disease, around 50% will have diabetes, around 35-40% it will be the cause of their end-stage renal disease. So that's probably going to be the first one off the bat um if it's uh certainly if it's a younger patient or there are really no other good clinical signs and something such as reflux nephropathy, uh, a chronic glomerulonephritis most so most commonly uh, iga disease and less commonly things like fsgs are going to be on the list as well uh, we've we've talked about the signs to look out for, for polycystic kidney disease but they might may be quite subtle you might not pick anything up so even if you haven't felt kidneys or seen scars i think pkd is going to be in your differential um, um, then I think you, you're getting into things that perhaps are, are less likely to crop up in exam but not impossible, things like obstructive uh, uropathy, uh- uh, exposure to nephrotoxins some of the the newer genetic conditions that we uh, now recognize that might be associated so with gout this is probably a whole other podcast we're gonna have to do now isn't it so we won't get too bogged down in that um and a, an increasing number of patients have as their coded diagnosis uh, chronic kidney disease of uncertain etiology um so i don't think that's a cop-out to say uh, that many patients who reach end-stage kidney disease do not have uh, a definite underlying diagnosis and it's a combination of perhaps some low grade gn plus or minus uh, cardiovascular risk factors hypertension and everything else that goes with it that have led to their their end-stage renal disease so I'll probably define that as something like ckd of unknown cause
0: yeah perfect and just goes to reinforce what we said before which is that if you're not sure on a distinct diagnosis and you haven't found signs to absolutely confirm one distinct diagnosis Describing the range of differentials, which it could be, are gonna be the things which demonstrate you have knowledge and the confidence in diagnosing the possible causes of end-stage renal disease. So then RJ, you've gone through the possible differential diagnoses. What should be the next part of your presentation?
1: Um, So the next part is really commenting um, if you identified any previous forms of renal replacement uh, therapy. In the case of a functioning transplant, uh, you you may have identified that there is a fistula that isn't working well. Um, And I think that's worth mentioning to say that this patient has previously undergone renal replacement therapy in the form of hemodialysis as evidenced by arteriovenous fistula on whatever side. It appears to be non-functioning as evidenced by this. You may then also at this point mention that there is evidence of other forms of renal replacement therapy. Uh, For example, if you identified any scars in the neck or um, on the chest wall, um, and you can always, if you find that you saw two additional scars that may have been associated with the PD catheter, again, at this point, I would mention those things.
0: Lastly, sometimes you can detect signs, as we discussed during the examination part as well, you can detect signs related to what immunosuppressive therapy the patients are taking.
2: So uh, I think as a renal physician, I'd be a bit anxious about writing a prescription on the basis of any of the signs you might see. But certainly classically, uh, most patients having a kidney transplant treated with steroids, uh, less and less so. But certainly a good chunk of the the cohort that will be available for basis exams will still be on steroids. So that's your kind of classic Cushingoid appearance, maybe some thin skin or some bruising or purpura. Uh, And if you've done a full abdominal examination, which uh, hopefully you uh, remember to do as part of this station uh, they may have some uh, central adiposity some strii that sort of thing as well um, there's kind of specific classic examples of uh, drug specific signs you might see with cyclosporin it's the gingival hypertrophy um, so they may have signs of uh, of Interval bleeding as well, or possibly some more dental work than you might expect if you've had a bit of a look uh, in their mouth. Uh, With tacrolimus, resting tremor is certainly a well-established side effect, but with stable patients with relatively low TAC levels, um, it wouldn't be a surprise if you didn't see anything there at all. But certainly if someone's uh, hands seem to be shaking a bit, just ask them to pop them out and, uh, and and hold them there for a second if you've got time during the examination. That m- might indicate, uh, could indicate cyclosporine as well, but more likely than not, you're not going to see anything. And uh, many of the immunosuppression drugs that we use will not have very much in the way of, of clinical signs. There may be some things you'll pick up on blood tests, but for a drug like azathioprine or microphenolate mofetil, Um, you're probably not going to pick up much in the way of clinical science by the bedside.
0: Perfect. And we're going to discuss some of the complications related to immunosuppressive therapy when we go on to the common examiner questions. But just to summarize this system, which includes pretty much all the information that you would need to provide to the examiner to demonstrate you have a good understanding of how to present a patient and and the variety of signs and considerations you need to have when assessing these patients, So just to summarize, you're going to state that the patient has end stage renal failure and you're going to try, if you can, to determine the exact etiology and then going on from there, describe the reasons why you think it's that specific etiology. If you can't, you're going to list the possible differential diagnoses, which we've mentioned. You're going to try and mention any forms of renal replacement therapy, including the transplant, which um, may be evident during the examination. And you're going to try and determine as well as you can if the transplant is functioning. And if the transplant is functioning, you may well find signs of previous renal replacement therapy in addition to that. And then finally, you're going to talk about any indication of the immunosuppressive therapy, which they may have, uh, which they may be taking at the time of the examination. So, pace sitters, that is the end of part one on renal transplants with eminent renal physicians, Dr. Jim Moriarty and Dr. Ravati Jane. Don't forget, for all of our episodes, we tweet out every single bite-sized learning point as we lead up to our next episode release. It's at this point we should give a shout out to Harvey J on Twitter, who is in respect to our previous episode on ankylosing spondylitis, recommended an apple emoji to represent the apple green colour after Congo red staining that the amyloid protein goes. So great, tenuous connection there, Harvey. And thanks for getting in touch. And you too can get in touch with us on Twitter, at Podcast. Don't forget to like, follow and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. We will be back in the second part of our renal transplant episode next time where we tackle nearly another hour's worth of content including the investigations, management and commonest examiner questions in a station one. Not only that, but we have our very first head to head in Quiz the Consultant where RJ's topic of rabbits is up against Jim's Marvel Cinematic Universe. It really is not to be missed and can all be heard on the next episode of the Pre-Paces podcast.